word. Um, I, I've known at least for about 20 years of the tents going down to Jamaica, so, and, and I'm sure they've been doing a lot longer than since I was aware. So what a great opportunity that you have, Jordan. All right, so this past weekend we had a retreat, and one of the things that we focused on for the work um, was information that we can provide for our visitors that come through the doors when we gather together um, as a congregation. And the other is for us to have information for new church members. And so it was a very profitable weekend that we had spending time on, on how we can better do this. And that actually grew from a standpoint of things that we're able to do. Um, and I'm, I'm kind of speaking as generically as possible because when I get all the information, um, more detailed information, I will share that in an email to everyone. And then we'll go from there. And hopefully in the next month or two months, we will have um, some new visitor cards and and new um, information type packets or brochures that we're going to have for our new church members. But anyway, what a great, wonderful weekend of, of time spent with one another that we've had. All right, so this title, Tree of Death, you will not find this phrase, Tree of Death, in the scriptures. Um, what we have naturally from the very beginning is what we are familiar with, the Tree of Life, right? We know that. And we can go from the very beginning in Genesis chapter 2. And in fact, go ahead and start there because I want you to read this text. I want this text to sink in mind because sometimes all we see is this phrase, tree of life, but never really start to associate it with anything else. And yet, I believe that's the author's intent when giving us this story in, in the life of Adam and Eve and the very beginning when there was no sin in the garden because it is very prominently displayed throughout the scriptures, even if not often, often enough that we get the picture by the time we get to the end of what we call the Bible. And so in Genesis chapter 2, read with me from verse 8. It says, the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put a man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, Jehovah God, or Yahweh, made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Okay, stop right there. Slow it down a little bit. Out of the ground, the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight. Everything was pleasant to the sight. And it was good for food. So you've got all this pleasant stuff in this garden that is also good to eat. And then look at what he says. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden. So now we've got all these trees and then the zeroing in, almost focusing, laser focus on this tree of life and next to it, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So in this creation and while there was um, beauty, fellowship, everything that is good, no sin is present, here's what exists. And of course, the story unfolds, and we read of that story in Genesis chapter 3, where man lived freely in this garden, but something else was present. And that's where in Genesis chapter 3, sin comes into this world, and after sin took place, God has man ousted from said garden, because 
in this garden was this particular tree that was associated with certain things. And we're going to look at that in just a minute. But the tree of knowledge of good and evil with this tree of life. And God basically was saying after they partook of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, man is no longer allowed in this garden because he would otherwise have access to this tree of life. So that's what's hanging in the balance in this story. And you won't really pick much up throughout the Old Testament, let alone the New Testament scriptures, although there are going to be moments that this comes back, whether it's imagery from it or something um, that will allude to it in the book of Proverbs. And then so we'll get to see that time again. So basically this, this tree, however, tree of, of life, is not really going to be picking back up again until you get to Revelation 22. And that's what was read for us by Jesse just a few minutes ago. In fact, you can read the rest of the chapter, and much of the chapter surrounds this concept of the tree of life. All right? So we're going to get back to that text in a little bit, but I want us to, to see. This is basically what we know already. Most of us, we've read Genesis many, many times, so we're familiar with this. All right? So what's this concept with the tree of death then? This tree of life is right there in the garden, and right next to it is this tree of death. Okay? And as I've said before, you're not going to find the label tree of death in the scriptures. It's not there. But the concept is. Okay? So I want us to slow down for a little bit. Look at what is this tree of death. And you're going to see all these synonyms. All right? So first of all, we see this tree of knowledge of good and evil, but it's associated with death, right? So look at the very beginning. In Genesis chapter 2, what does God say to Adam? You can freely eat of every tree, right? Verse 15, 16, and particularly 17. Eat freely of every single tree except for this tree, the knowledge of good and evil. And this is what the author wants us to pick up on. And sometimes we gloss over the reading so often that all we get is good and evil, good and evil. We never really think through the ramifications of what this tree represents. Tied to this, don't eat of this tree. When you eat of it, you will surely die. There's your connection there. We come to the very next storyline that involves this tree and life and death. Right? So Eve and Adam and Eve, they're in the garden, and the serpent comes up, and the serpent adds all these questions, and then all of a sudden, we've got this, well, hanging in the balance. Should I eat this tree of knowledge of good and evil, or should I not eat it? All right? So pick up with me in Genesis chapter 3. Verse 1 says, The serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made, and he said to the woman... Has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Okay. For those that were in our Bible study this morning, we were reading out, out of Psalm 40. And remember, there is this contrast. Either you trust in Yahweh or you trust in falsehoods. That's, that's what you have hanging in the balance. And I'm going to either believe this as quote-unquote truth or I'm going to believe this as quote truth. Right, which is it? So, the woman says to the serpent in verse 2, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God had said, speaking of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat it, 
nor shall you touch it lest you die. So she understood, even if we get into nuances, basically, basically you eat this fruit and you die. So she knows what God is saying. She hears what the serpent is saying. And notice what is said here. It goes, it's a play off of what we just read in Genesis chapter 2. That in the midst of the garden were all these trees and they were all, they looked good to eat, right? Look at what it says here. God knows, verse 5, as the serpent is speaking to the woman, in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, like all the other trees were, good for food, that it was pleasing to the eyes, just like all the other fruit was, pleasing to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise. She took of its fruit and she ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. So both of their eyes, in fact, were open because they ate of this tree of, not, of the knowledge of good and evil. Well, here's the thing. I'm either going to trust in God and not eat of this tree of knowledge of good and evil. What does, it, what does that represent if I don't have this tree that I partake of of knowledge of good and evil? That means I'm having to rely upon God. That what God says is good, what God says is evil, versus I'm taking from, of my own accord, my own volition, what I think is the right thing to do to gain access to this wisdom. That's basically the way the author is presenting it for us. And so we see this connection with life and death in this garden, particularly death with this tree. Because once you eat this tree, God said, you will die. But what really happened? They didn't die physically, did they? Now, death was physically going to come down the road, but what happened? They were separated from God. They were kept from the tree of life. That's what happened, right? That's the story. They're ousted of the garden. Um, you've got cherubim, and they've got their swishing swords and everything, and they're keeping guard from the tree of life. That's the picture that is given. They're kicked out, headed east. Another motif. Well, look at these things that are associated with this story of this tree. It was associated with temptation. The tree of knowledge of good and evil is a story of temptation. Okay? It was associated with either I'm going to do what God says or I'm going to do it my way. You know? I had this whisper in my ear. Hey, you're going to be just like God. You're going to be wise like him. And that was desirable to me. And so rather than God's way, I want my way. Those are the pictures. So in other words, we're talking about man's temptation to do things his own way in contrast to doing things God's way. That's what's associated with this tree in Genesis chapters 2 and 3. Okay? So that's what's associated with this, this thing called the tree of knowledge of good or the knowledge of good and evil or synonymously speaking, the tree of death. Well, let's go back to this concept of the tree of life. Because all we had was this tree, and we see it contrasted with death here, but we get to see how this tree of life is associated with in Bible talk, if you will. So in Proverbs chapter 11, I want you to turn your Bibles to Proverbs 11. We're going to look at various Proverbs statements that associate this tree of life, and notice how it's being used, the tree of life concept. And it's going to be playing off this tree of death 
to contrast it. Okay? So, in Proverbs, beginning in Proverbs 11, let's look at what it says here. It says here in chapter 11 in verse 30, The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he who ensouls is wise. So remember the parallelism that we're talking about in our Bible studies. All right? So he's basically saying, you know, he who wins souls is wise. Well, how do you win souls? There's a lot of ways that we win souls. And sometimes we think about it from a preaching standpoint. Sometimes it's like love covers a multitude of sins, things of those nature. Right? When you are wise, you're going to bring fruit, that wisdom. And where does that wisdom come from? Does it come from yourself or from God? Okay, and so that's right, whoever said that. <laughs> and so the fruit of the righteous, the people who do right, they partake of this fruit, right? Or the reality or the consequences of their righteous living is in fact life. He says it as, as it is a tree of life in a simile fashion, right? So the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. We also find this in chapter 15. Look at the first few verses. Verse 1 of chapter 15, Proverbs 15. A soft answer turns away wrath. Oh, healing, life. A harsh word stirs up anger. Anger, I can think back to what happened with Cain and his anger, death, slayed his brother. These are the pictures that should be coming up in your mind. The tongue of the wise uses knowledge rightly, but the mouth of fools pours forth foolishness. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. So here's this good and evil. We're back again to the, the, this tree concept. Then it makes this contrast, right? So again, he keeps his watch on the evil and on the good. A wholesome tongue is a tree of life. Conversely, the perverseness in it breaks the spirit. So you've got this concept again, tree of life, and you've got the allusion to this death on the other end. That's what you have. We'll go even further. We are told in Proverbs chapter 3 about what wisdom is personified as, right? Book of Proverbs, chapters 1, 2, 3, all the way through 7, up, in fact, all the way through chapter 10. And wisdom is personified as a woman. Lady wisdom, she's called. Right? And so in Proverbs chapter 3, go back a little ways and look at what's being said here in verse 5. Now, remember again, just like in our Psalm 40 study this morning, and just as if we're looking at the whole concept of partaking of the fruit that is of the tree of life and partaking of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil of your own accord against the wishes of God, against the will of God, right? So in Proverbs 3, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. What you ought to have in your mind is going back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, 16, and 17, right? You, you freely eat of every tree just not the one over here, okay? That's what you should have. And then right on the heels of that is the example given of those who partook of the tree against the wishes of God. So don't lean on your own understanding. Trust in the Lord 
Trust in his wisdom of, of good and evil, and you'll be fine. And so that's what's basically being told to him. He goes on to, to say it this way in verse 6. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. So notice what it goes on to say. In verse 16 and 17, particularly 17, in verse 16, length of days is in her right hand, speaking of lady wisdom, and in her left hand, riches and honor. Length of days, life. Therefore, verse 18, she is a tree of life to those who take hold of her. Okay? So if you are wise, you're going to trust in the Lord, and you're going to follow him and follow his way, and he will lead you down this path of life. That's the picture. Conversely, if not, you'll partake of the fruit that leads to death. When you don't lean on God, but you lean on your own understanding. So that's what we're seeing through this, this book of Proverbs. And of course, in chapter 13 and verse 12 is his final thought along the lines of this tree of life concept as it contrasts to death. So in chapter 13, it says here in verse 12, hope deferred makes the heart sick okay i've got these desires that i want to happen but it's not happening and so my heart starts to wane in this hope and and i don't feel so good because i'm not getting what i'm hoping for what my desires are but here's the reality when you have this expectation and it comes to pass and he says here in verse thir- or in, in verse 12 of chapter 13 When the desire comes or when that hope is fulfilled, it is a tree of life. Okay? So what is that hope based on? And that's the picture that's given. It's it's a reality of life, right? You, You want something, you're going after it, and when you get it, there's a fulfillment to that. Of course, this is all through wisdom, and that's the context of this this passage of one who is wise. And so when your hopes are desired or it's realized, it's likened unto a tree of life. So that's what we see as associated with this. All right, we could go on and on with this concept, but what does it mean then? How does it affect us listening to a sermon about some tree at the very beginning? And it has everything to do with us. That picture in Genesis 2 and 3, serves as a template for us. It is what set into motion what we call the Bible. Think about it. Every single time after Genesis 2 and 3, the pictures of eat whatever you want, enjoy everything in this garden. Rely on me, though. Okay? Don't listen to falsehoods that may tell you otherwise. And so we've got this picture of temptation in the garden, and, and they're wondering, and everything has been good, but once that temptation comes, they're like, wow, but that one tree that we're told not to eat, do I, do I go after that tree, or do I just stay away and trust in the Lord? And it serves as a template, because what we see in Genesis 4, God says to Cain, remember, he was accepting Abel's offering, but not Cain's. And now Cain's jealous, and God is like, Cain, watch it, because sin is crouching at the door for you, okay? Trust me, know that if you continue this path, you're going to die. If 
I can just use that vernacular. And in essence, he trusts, Cain does, in his own view of right or wrong and not in God's. And out of his anger, the anger takes hold of him and he slays his brother. That's the very first picture after sin had entered the world and we see what man does. Does he follow that path where he trusts in the Lord or does he do his own thing? That's what's given here. And so for us then, we have the same thing. Now, I want you to open up to Romans 5. We're going to finish with these. Well, we're going to go to a couple of other passages, the ones in, in Revelation. But the teaching that we have of what goes on in Genesis 2 and 3 are found right here in Romans chapter 5. At least the allusion to it. So don't you look at this text because it's a beautiful, beautiful picture of God's grace in light of our sin against him. All right. Romans chapter 5. I want you to read this text with me. It's beautiful. All right. We're going to pick up in verse 12. So he's contrasting this Adam, first man, with the second Adam, Jesus Christ. And he says in verse 12, therefore, just as through one man, that is Adam, sin entered the world and death through sin and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. And notice this parenthetical statement. It goes for a little while. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him, that is of Christ, who was to come. But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. He continues on with this parenthetical statement, and he says, And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation. But the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification that allowed us to stand right before God, that is. And then he continues on one more. He says, For if by one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more... Those who receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So what you have then is this this template given in Genesis chapter 2 and 3, particularly chapter 2, that's serving as a template for mankind's fall, right? So one man sinned. He transgressed the will of God. God says, don't eat of this fruit. But they did. They relied on themselves rather than trusted in Yahweh. And so transgression came. And we're told that all have sinned since then, even if not in the likeness of Adam's sin. And, of course, he was talking about from from Adam to Moses until the law came. But there was no imputation of that sin until law was available. Well, think about it. Did God give a law to Adam and Eve? He did. Otherwise, there would have been no imputation of sin. But because there was this law of everything you can eat, here comes the law, and thus temptation and the opportunity for a curse as a result. The curse is death. The law comes, and man does not trust in God's wisdom, breaks the law, 
and thus stands condemned before God. We fast forward and we see the anti-type in Jesus Christ. He comes in and perfectly fulfills God's will. He trusts completely in his heavenly father. And as a result, he's able to not only be a sacrifice for our sins, but by virtue of that is a propitiation. In other words, he stands in our place condemned and taking the penalty of that condemnation upon himself. So that through his righteous life, completely fully obedient to the Father, we can stand before our God justified. That's the picture of what's being said here in Romans chapter 5. What he's saying, in other words, is that every sin equates with us choosing against God's wisdom of what is good or evil. That's what sin represents, and us choosing to sin, whether through ignorance, whether we're not consulting, whatever the situation is. That's a reality, okay? And that reality is talked further in Romans chapter 7, but what, that's what the simple point that we're looking at. Conversely, however, the righteous act of Jesus Christ equated with eternal life. Because by virtue of his righteous act, he makes us clean to stand before God. And of course, the rest of the New Testament is, for all those who call upon the name of the Lord, we are called to live righteous lives. That's what the rest of Romans 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11 is dealing with, right, for Jews and Gentiles. And so what we have here is a very simple statement in, in what we call Romans chapter 5 of life and death. In fact, in chapter 5, verse 18, look at what he goes on to say. He says... Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. You got life, you have death. Tree of life, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, death. Okay? For as by one man's disobedience, verse 19, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience... Many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So you're not having an explicit link that says, hey, this is tree of life, this is tree of death. But you need to be able to see the allusion to it because it, it is the motif of what we call the Bible or one of many of them, if you will. Well, what that means is when we get to the rest of the Old Testament, I mean, New Testament scriptures, particularly the last book of the Bible and the last chapter in the last book of the Bible, we actually come full circle. So for those of us in our psalm studies and our poetic literature that we've been studying in Ecclesiastes and in the book of Proverbs, and we're talking about poetic literature, and we're using this word that people are now saying is my favorite word, at least Ted referred to it today, my favorite word, chiasm. Not my favorite word per se, but I get what he's saying. It's one that we're using very often because it is a motif in Scripture. That's what we're seeing in the Bible. God's creation at the very beginning and God's new creation at the very end. And what you have is, in the very beginning, sin entering this perfect world, and at the very end, this imperfect world through righteousness, the righteous requirements through Jesus Christ. 
And so you're seeing that chiastic type play out throughout the history of man. And so obviously then, if you got this tree of life in the very beginning, what might you expect at the very end but the tree of life? And that's what we see here in Revelation 22. So we're going to finish with this text here. Um, I want you to turn to Revelation 22, and I want you to see this. And I hope then as a result, not only do we get to glory in God, right, thanking him for the fact that we have Jesus as the, the righteousness by which we can have access to God's throne of grace, we just get to see the beauty of this history we call the Bible and see it unfold in a most amazing manner that brings this very point out. So Revelation 22. In verse 1, again, as was read by Jesse earlier, it says, And he showed me, in this vision that John has from the angel, showed me a pure river of water of life. Ah, life. Clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street, just like in the middle of that garden, think in the middle of the street, and on either side of the river was a tree of life. Ah. But this time, we get lots more imagery. It, with this tree of life, it bore 12 fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Why? Well, because we had partaken of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That represents death and sin. And here's the healing coming from this tree of life that we had not had access to up until and through the death of Jesus through his righteous act. And so it goes on to say this. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. There is no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. It's like this picture again of the garden, but instead it's, in this city, chapter 21 of Revelation, in this city picture of a glorified garden picture, and it's expounded upon in great detail of this tree of life. And what is interesting is, in the beginning, where, where next to the tree of life existed this tree of knowledge of good and evil, no more tree. And if there's no more tree, there's no more temptation, and thus no more curse and that is why the writer continues on with this motif and look at what he says here verses 12 through 15 as he goes on with this this concept of this tree of life john is quoting jesus and saying and behold i am coming quickly and my reward is with me to give everyone according to his work i am the alpha and the omega the beginning and the end, the first and the last. And he's playing off not only who he is, but from the very beginning of, of man and the relationship with God. And he says this then, Blessed are those who do his commandments that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. That's a picture that he gives. Contrast that with those who do not have access to the tree of life. Outside of this city, like outside of the garden, if you will, are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. Do you get the illusion? 
Just like at the very beginning when the serpent of old came and whispered lies into the ear of the first man and woman. That's the contrast. So when you're reading in Genesis and you go back to your Bible reading and you're going back and you open up these words, let it digest and let it sink in and watch that motif unfold through the scriptures because it plays a very significant role of what it's associated with. And every time we make choices in our life about what we are doing, are we leaning upon our own understanding or are we trusting and leaning upon our creator? And the thing is, as Christians, we struggle with that. Because every day, we make a multitude of choices, some of which mean nothing to us from a moral standpoint, right? Left turn, right turn, fruit loops, banana, whatever. You know, we, we make choices and seem insignificant. And then we come to points in which, yeah, this is an important decision. And if we have the mind of Christ on our heart, we're wanting to put our trust going, God, I don't see how this is going to work out this way because... You know, but I'm going to trust in you. And it may mean it can, it can result in difficult trials that you're faced with, but what it ultimately means is life. You have access to the tree of life because you follow him who died a righteous death that gives us access to that tree. And you're saying, I want to be like Jesus. I want to follow in his footsteps. I'm going to live righteously. I'm going to lean upon you. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be for my, for my life. So that's a, that's a sermon. It's very simple. But sometimes, you know, you don't get... It's not like um, Bible workbooks where you just fill in the blank. You find a Bible passage, make sure you get the right translation, and then when you can just look at the words, you can fill in the blank. Sometimes it's just not clear as crystal like that. But the illusions are fraught throughout Scripture. And hopefully you can see them. And if you missed it, all throughout from Genesis 2 and 3 all the way to Revelation 22, by all means, by Revelation 22, it becomes, again, crystal clear. You get to really see it. Um, It kind of smacks us between the eyes. And hopefully then we can kind of put that puzzle together and see what God was intending for us to get. So we have this song, Trust and Obey. It's a perfect song for us to to enjoy singing to each other and building each other up. It's a great opportunity if someone wants to come to the Lord. Because what you're saying is, I no longer want to put trust in myself. I'm wanting to put trust in my creator who made me and through his son who died that righteous act in perfect obedience. And the one who I'm calling Lord to follow in his footsteps. That's what you're admitting to and confessing to living a life of. When you do that, and when you do that, you have access to the tree of life, not the tree of death. Anyway, if that subject, uh, that invitation is for you, if you need our prayers, by all means, come forward, and we'll pray for you as together we stand and sing this song.